Welcome to Ontario Lab, the podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Sam Andrin. I'm Karima Talwar Kapoor. And I'm Alvin Tejo. And Chris, our uh, illustrious host, is taking a well-earned vacation, so I will be walking us through the latest in Ontario news this week, uh, from a shakeup to the way COVID-19 data is being collected, to the ongoing bun fight over paid sick leave, and finally to the allegations this week that the Tories are intentionally undermining the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. Uh, lots to unpack, uh, but first, Alvin, I know that you and your whole family got COVID tested this week, and we unpacked Chris's whole testing experience, so I feel like we need to unpack yours uh, since, you know, it's the only thing anybody's thinking about these days. So uh, how did that go? Uh, you know, it wasn't so bad. We brought our whole family. I've got three kids. They're five, seven and nine with the intention of all of us getting uh, tested all at once. Uh, Rebecca, my wife, is a um, healthcare worker. She's uh, an ER nurse at SickKids and she was coming down with some symptoms. So we wanted to double check and at the same time figure out if uh, the rest of us had it as well, since we're obviously exposed to her all the time. She's pretty careful when she gets home from work. She usually uh, takes a shower right away. She's got a different bin for her laundry. She doesn't hug or kiss the kids when she gets home. And uh, she's got a completely different set of scrubs now at work that uh, work has given her. So, you know, we were thinking this should be okay. But out of an abundance of caution, as the premier liked to say, we thought it was a good idea to go out and get tested. And we were hearing it was pretty quick and easy. We went to Credit Valley Hospital, uh, which is just down the street from us, and there was no line. We uh, sort of drove right up, and they asked us if we had an appointment. We had heard some people got turned away if they didn't have an appointment, but uh, we didn't get turned away, so we were happy about that. Uh, got registered uh, right away. They told us that our younger two kids could not get tested because for some reason they weren't equipped to do um, anybody under the age of eight. So my five-year-old and my seven-year-old unfortunately didn't get to get tested i don't know they seem pretty excited about the fact that they didn't have to get <laughs> swabbed um because we had been preparing them you know they're gonna stick this thing way up your nose um but they also did it down their throats so um it wasn't terribly comfortable um it you know it definitely felt like a medical procedure but it's uh, it's very quick the thing that we didn't realize was how long, um, I mean, we knew the results were going to come in a couple of days, and it took almost exactly two days. The problem was we got tested on Sunday, and Rebecca had to work on Tuesday, and uh, according to her hospital, she's not allowed to start work if she has an outstanding test. So she missed a day of work because we hadn't gotten our test back right away um, because of that. But we all came out negative, and um, you know, it was... Uh, it was okay. You use your your health card and and then you just look it up on the website and you're just checking every couple of hours just to make sure that everyone's doing okay. And uh, they all showed up negative. So, you know, it's not comfortable. It's certainly not something I would say you should go out and do if you don't have any reason to go out and do it, unless you're just curious. Um, but it, it is it is quick. We were definitely in and out in less than 20, 25 minutes. I was expecting, you know, I'd packed iPads, I packed snacks and drinks and a whole bunch <laughs> of things for the kids to do in the back seat. Um, but we ended up not needing any of it. And uh, we just rolled down our windows while they swabbed us. So, you know, I think uh, if you're thinking about getting tested, you should just do it. 
Good stuff. Okay. And Grima, do you have any exciting life updates like th- throat swabs? <laughs> no, no, thankfully not. I'm so nervous about the idea of getting a COVID test. So I'm hopeful that I don't have to um, and can just take an antibodies test at one point uh, when they're available. But yeah, it just, the entire process just sounds so frightening. But people should still go get one uh, if they feel that they need it. And the good thing is, I think they've finally increased the capacity, right? We're well over 20,000 a day, and there doesn't seem to be anything turning people away or dissuading people from getting tested anymore. So I'm glad they finally got to that point, although it's taken a long time. Yeah, for sure. And maybe transitioning nicely to our first topic, Alvin. Uh, Ontario does continue to see positive progress with the number of new COVID-19 positive cases coming down and the number of tests, to your point, being performed, uh, continuing to meet targets. Um, In sort of a new development, though, on Monday, the province announced in response to requests by community leaders and public health experts, they would be making a regulatory change to mandate public health units report uh, data on race income, language, and household size for individuals who have been uh, tested positive for COVID-19. So this data would be voluntary, you wouldn't have to provide it, and it would be uh, anonymized and then made available to researchers through this new Ontario Health data platform that they um, are creating. Uh, They indicated in their announcement that this was to ensure the province has a more complete picture of the outbreak. Uh, It also makes Ontario the second province in Canada after Manitoba to mandate race-based data be collected. and this comes after calls primarily from the black community, but not exclusively. Also, Toronto City Hall asked for this um, to try to understand how COVID-19 is intersecting with other inequities. Uh, worth noting, in the United States, for example, black Americans are dying at three times the rate of white Americans. So, folks, are we surprised by this development? And what do we make of the change? I think that I'm... I don't know that surprised is necessarily the right word because momentum has been building for a couple of months on this. Um, But I do think, and so I am pleased that we've moved away from what was uh, the government's initial response or Dr. Williams' initial response of we care about all of our patients equally, essentially, to something that is now understanding that uh, to create equitable care. Uh, We need to understand how um, COVID is transmitting across communities. And so I think that this is a good start, but I really do want to caution that the collection of disaggregated data, uh, be it by race or income or whichever dimension you want to use, does not necessarily mean that the act is inherently anti-racist or equitable. For uh, for Ontario to have public policy that is anti-racist and equitable, um, we need policy action. And so I, I think that at the front end, we need to be really mindful of the fact that the collection of disaggregated data is inherently extractive. We're asking uh, people, many of whom are in vulnerable situations um, and maybe in com- living in communities that are marginalized, uh, to provide decision makers and policymakers with more and more information about their lives without a standing commitment that that information is going to be used uh, for good public policy development. And so, um, I think that 
the push for disaggregated data needs to be matched with a position from decision makers and policymakers to say that uh, we're also developing a nuanced policy toolbox that enables us to create the types of public policy responses that we need uh, to respond to higher rates of COVID or any other illness uh, better. And so we know that from from public health research from decades past, um, it's not just COVID, uh, where there's a relationship between race and income um, and gender, for example, but many other um, many other illnesses um, like um, like heart disease or cancer also fall along uh, these patterns, and they have less to do with genetic makeup almost nothing to do with genetic makeup, but a lot to do with the social and economic circumstances that uh, that people are living in. And so we need to really understand the context and the history um, that leads to higher rates of transmission of the illness. Yeah, agree. I agree with you 100%. I can't believe it, it actually is surprising to me a little bit that it took sort of this long for the government and governments across Canada who still haven't done it um, to acknowledge that they should be collecting this disaggregated data um, and specifically around uh, income and race because we've known it for a long time. We've known that these issues have uh, disproportionately affected um these types of groups, minority groups, uh, new Canadians, new immigrants, and uh, people in poor neighborhoods, uh, lower socioeconomic status. And we saw it in the Toronto data that uh, the city of Toronto released when they were releasing the regional data of where COVID has been impacting them. And with sort of the heightened uh, awareness uh, over race-based issues, I'm glad that they finally got around to it. But I don't. I'm kind of surprised at the fact that you wouldn't just say, sort of on whole, that we need to start collecting more of this data so that we understand, you know, really what's behind uh, the issues that people are facing. And when some people are talking about the systemic part of racism, it's not the conscious racism of people. Um, going out there, uh, which exists, but it's the systemic pieces that are embedded within society when we don't bother going out there and collecting data like this to understand how disproportionately these issues are affecting certain populations. That is adding to the system that is keeping people down or keeping people sick or keeping people poor and the system sort of ignoring that it exists. So I'm surprised that it took them this long. I'm glad that they're finally getting around to doing it. Um, But I would hope that we have a sort of policy lens from now on that we should always be looking out for, for, for these people and um, that the data and the collection of it is not something we should be afraid of and is not superfluous and is absolutely necessary if we're going to tackle the immediate challenge and the broader challenge of, um, of, of making us more uh, aware to systemic racist issues. Yeah, I think that's great, uh, both your uh, perspectives. Um, maybe on a different topic related to COVID data, also announced um, just today on Thursday when we're recording that Ontario and Canada together are uh, launching a smartphone app um, next week so that people who uh, test positive uh, can alert, uh, can be alerted if they've come into close contact. Um, We had talked about this on a previous episode. It appears that the government has 
followed advice from a lot of security and privacy experts around a design that minimizes the amount of data that's collected using Bluetooth technology and keeping all data on um, Canadians' individual devices rather than creating a central database. Uh, it was developed um, with volunteer um employees from Shopify and BlackBerry. Um, so quite a development. The government has uh, indicated it will be completely voluntary, though light on details about how exactly that will uh, be um, enforced, but uh, a big development as well. Um, what do we think of this? Will you be downloading this app? And uh, yeah, perspectives on this hot development. I'm going to download the app <laughs> more so because I'm curious as to uh, what the government and, and their partners have been able to put together. I think it's also perhaps maybe too little too late. Um, uh, other countries, uh, you, as we've seen in, in Japan and in, in Korea, where they introduce um, a lot of contact tracing, not just the app, but also as part of their strategy to fight against COVID-19 um, in a serious way, it was part of the mindset of uh, the population immediately to figure out who they've been around and to be very aware and conscious of this. I don't know that we're there uh, as Canadians or as Ontarians, and I don't know if this is as voluntary as it is without any serious uh, encouragement from the government to get people to apply and download and use the app, are we going to get the sort of um, mass acceptance of it that it will provide useful data for um, people as well as for the government to use uh, in an effective way? So I'm hopeful. Um, but at the same time, I'm worried that uh, it's a little too little too late at this point. Sam, what do you think coming out of your paper? Yeah, I mean, I think the technology design, there's more details to come, but um, the technology design from what I've seen is uh, excellent. Um, so I will give credit where credit is due on that. It will be um, the one of the first apps in the world, I think, to truly have kind of privacy by design where the government will at no point have any personal information. Um and so uh, kudos to them. Switzerland is also developing one in fairness, but um, they're in rare company. Um, I continue to have some concerns about, they say it will be completely voluntary, but there is nothing in legislation now that would prevent, say, an employer requiring employees to download it, a landlord adding it to a lease, for example. Um, there's a lot of ways that private actors could have the effect of making it mandatory. Uh, and, you know, one in four low-income people don't have a smartphone. Um, uh, you know, 20% of uh, seniors don't have a smartphone. So um, I think there are like real equity um, considerations. So I'm hopeful that um, there's some legislation change to come that um, backs that up, but the legislature is uh, no longer sitting. So I don't have a lot of... Um, uh, faith that that will be happening. Um, so I'm concerned about that. Um, I think like it is maybe like a classic Canadianism that are some of our biggest technology companies, you know, Shopify and Blackberry, uh, were able to work this up with government in secret essentially, and then like roll it out. Like the, I don't think the 
procurement process, if you want to call it that. It wasn't really procurement because they didn't pay for it. But um, the development process was not, I think, overly transparent. But um, maybe that's par for the course for for Canada. But um, that's maybe a small quibble. But I think um, I think kudos on the design. That's my perspective. Okay, moving on um, to our next topic. And that is a bit of a brouhaha, Chris wrote these notes, a bit of a brouhaha forming in recent weeks over paid sick leave in Ontario. Uh, a couple of weeks back, the federal government announced $14 billion to help provinces rebuild their economies and deal with the pandemic. However, there were strings attached. Provinces needed to spend the money on expanding testing and contact tracing, personal protective equipment, improved childcare, support for municipalities, and paid sick leave. Specifically, Trudeau has committed, uh, perhaps in part at the urging of the NDP, in fairness, uh, to push provinces to implement 10 paid sick days as a condition for receiving the aid. This was a particular sore spot for the Ford government, who, of course, uh, took away the two mandatory paid sick days that were implemented by the Wynn government shortly after they were elected in 2018. In response to this federal package, Doug Ford said that the amount of aid was inadequate. Ontario would need at least $23 billion alone. Uh, When asked about paid sick days specifically, he said, I don't support it. We have legislation that protects the jobs of people. If they don't feel safe, they don't have to go to work. Uh, what do we think of, I guess, both approaches, the federal government's approach and the provincial approach to this? And uh, where do you think they go from here? I mean, I don't think it's ever good to have the interjurisdictional issues because it tends to lead to a lot of inaction and finger pointing and nothing gets done. Uh, the municipalities do the same thing when the province uh, ties too many strings and conditions to the funding that they're going to give, uh, which is going to be another topic that we're going to have to talk about at some point because there are no municipalities that are going to make it out of COVID-19 with uh, with a balanced budget. And uh, they're legally mandated by the province not to have that. So, you know, I think it's it's right for the federal liberals to want to encourage provincial governments to implement sick days. And obviously, I personally agree that we should have paid sick days. It's not enough to say that you can take a sick day, a sick day, and it won't affect your jo- employment status. It will affect your bottom line if you're not going to get paid for that. And we can't um, continue disincentivizing people to be healthy. Um, we want people to stay home if they have any illness and are not you know, going to work and, and, and spreading whatever that illness may be, COVID-19 or otherwise. So, you know, Doug Ford is wrong, is wrong on this. I don't know what we can do to encourage him to, to, to actually implement paid sick days. Um, this is obviously where the federal government thinks they can lean on them a little bit. Uh, I don't really buy how much it's going to cost, uh, according to the provincial Tories, but you know, more money is obviously going to be needed uh, from this. And the, the province is trying to find a way for the feds to pay for more of the recovery, um, which maybe they have a responsibility to do anyway. So, you know, I don't know where this is going to land. Uh, and that's sort of the tricky part. It, you, you, you need the feds to find a way to essentially shame um, provinces into implementing this plan um, or encourage them in a positive way to actually do it. And I don't know that we're going to get that with the Ford government right now with this. So I'm not really sure where this ends. Yeah, I think, um, you know, typical of Canada, we're 
we're playing a game of interjurisdictional hot potato. That's been my thing for this week, um, where different orders of government are just kind of, you know, passing the potato to each other in efforts to sort of uh, deflect uh, responsibility and abdicate their own responsibility for um, a lot of important social and economic policy areas. Um, you know, but to go back to a little bit of first principles, I think it's important to assert that uh, most of the workers that need access to paid protected leave uh, or protected paid leave um, are considered essential workers and are the workers that have been getting us through this pandemic, be they grocery store workers, be they uh, personal support workers in long-term care homes. And uh, according to David McDonald at the CCPA, in 2019, 74% of Canada's highest paid workers had their leave from work paid for by an employer. But by in contrast, only 14% of low-income workers had their paid leave, including vacation covered by their employer. So we're in this scenario now where um, people who have been low-paid have been considered precarious workers for decades in our labor market, have been at the front end of, of helping us get through this crisis. And just as when we're starting to think about a tail off from the CERB, when we're starting to thinking or starting to think about what a gradual reopening looks like, we're basically saying to these workers that we're not going to uh, provide you with the income protection you need in the case that you get sick. Um, and I think that you know there's there's the the sort of values based element of this. And then there's, of course, the economics and public policy issues that need to be thought about. And and when I think about it, you know, the onus on employers, um, I think, needs to be there. But I don't think that governments can, can create new um, conditions on employers struggling to come back online and say that this is a new expense that you have to take on. I I don't think that provincial governments are going to be, or many of them are going to be keen to take this on. And so as, as an element that is integral to our success in terms of crisis response, the feds really do need to take this on and they need to think about a program where they're helping workers who don't have uh, such protected paid leave but also not creating incentives for those employers that do provide that leave to step away from it. So it's a very nuanced debate, but I don't think that it's something that we can't overcome. We just have to, um, we have to first and foremost, think about the workers um, and what their needs are in the recovery. Great. And finally, Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca was on the attack this week, saying that the Ford government is slowly and deliberately starving to death human rights protections in Ontario. The Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario, or HRTO, resolves claims of discrimination and harassment brought under the Ontario Human Rights Code. This law protects people in Ontario in five areas, employment, housing, uh, goods, services, and facilities, contracts, and membership in trade and vocational associations. The code prohibits discrimination 
discrimination or harassment on any of the following grounds. I won't list them all, but basically race, ancestry, citizenship, disability, uh, sex, gender, uh, sexual orientation, um, uh, family status, age, etc. The HRTO first offers parties the opportunity to settle the dispute through mediation, which if unsuccessful can lead to a hearing. There is a full-time chief commissioner and a number of part-time commissioners and members that are appointed by the government. Uh, The Ford government has left positions at the Human Rights Commission vacant. Currently, the website lists 11 vacancies, which uh, the HRTO says has resulted in increased wait times and delays for hearings. Uh, The past chief commissioner was just recently in May appointed a federal judge, and the Tories have yet to name an interim commissioner. They've also come under fire, you may recall, for not using um, a short list of commissioners that was developed, but instead appointing an active duty police officer to the part-time commissioner role back in January, who has ties to the PC party. Uh, It is also maybe worth noting as part of the context here that the PC's views on the effectiveness of the HRTO are not exactly a secret. Former leader Tim Hudak promised to get rid of the tribunal altogether and rely only on the courts to enforce uh, the Human Rights Code. Uh, So friends, what do we think of this uh, new line of attack from the liberals? And uh, do we think that this is an intentional part of the Ford government and not just their general incompetence? All right. Um, I think that it's important to sort of clarify that Ontario's human rights system is predicated on civil rights, which is really important because in the world of human rights, there's economic, social, political, and civil rights. And our tradition of human rights, so to speak, is is focused on political and civil rights. And that's why things like, you know, um, Employers can't discriminate on the on the basis of family status or marital status or sexual orientation or gender identity are all embedded in in our understanding of human rights and in our human rights system. Uh, we've got the human rights tribunal um, that Stephen Del Duca has commented on, and then we've also got the Ontario Human Rights Commission, which sort of oversees the system of of uh, many tribunals. So it's not just the human rights tribunal, um, but they also sort of look at uh, the social benefits tribunal. They look at the landlord and uh, tenant board, for example. And so this system of, of, uh, or this human rights system that we have in Ontario is multi-pronged with the different prongs intended to protect and further the political and civil rights of Ontario residents um, for different dimensions of their life. And what we're seeing by the commission not being able to replace its own commissioners um, by the the various tribunals that we have in Ontario not being able to um, hire the number of adjudicators they need to adjudicate um, a- appeals for, for example, in social assistance, if somebody applies for um, social assistance and the disability benefit in particular, and they're denied, uh, they can take that, uh, their appeal to a social benefits tribunal. And that tribunal needs adjudicators to be able to adjudicate uh, fairly and sort of assess the situation that the both 
that the uh, appellant or the claimant and the government is making. And, and we've seen systematically the government undermine this entire system, be it from a tribunal's angle or the commission's angle. And I think that, you know, for people that are listening or think about public policy a lot, it's really important to to recognize that good public policy is not just about the design of public policy and the implementation of public policy, but in a well-functioning democracy also requires accountability and transparency. And, um, and we, we're not seeing that right now. And I, and I think that that's deeply troublesome for anybody that's paying attention to policy issues, be it employment, be it uh, social assistance or be it housing policy issues. And on that end, um, I think that in our culture of human rights, we also need to understand that our human rights are not limited to political and civil rights, but economic and social rights really matter. So we, as human beings, have the right uh, to uh, safe and secure housing, for example. And and Canada in as a whole has been behind uh, compared to other countries in affirming and recognizing economic and social rights. Um, but it's really important for us to do so, so that uh, when somebody does take a complaint to a human rights tribunal, the claim is understood not only from the one dimension, um, but from many dimensions. And that that includes having good commissioners and adjudicators to be able to hear the the claim. I think that's an amazing point, Karima, and, and thanks for clarifying that. Um, to answer your question earlier, Sam, I, I do think it's intentional. I do think that this government is taking this as an opportunity to to water down and to uh, undermine uh, all these uh, these bodies, the tribunal, the tribunal, the commissioners, um, and essentially ignore it because it's no secret that they don't. Um, they don't like the oversight. They don't like the extra work it puts on uh, some of you know business owners, their supporters, and and they see it as you know bureaucratic and and unnecessary, and uh, wanting to use the justice system instead. So I think it's unfortunate, but I think that's the truth. Yeah, I don't disagree, and I guess I I will be curious if the politics of the anti-black racism and police brutality protests over the last few weeks um, will have changed anything for them in that regard Um, because I think they were getting away with this without much scrutiny to date Um, so we will keep an eye on that Uh, thank you everybody that is all for today's episode Uh, next week we will be bringing you a special pride themed episode on the latest uh, policy impacting the LGBTQ plus community as next week would have marked um, the Pride Week here in Toronto uh, had it not been for this pandemic. Uh, don't forget to like, follow, subscribe to Ontario Loud on your podcast app and across social media. If you have thoughts on what you heard today, you can get to us on Twitter at Ontario Loud or email us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We do love hearing feedback. Ontario Loud is Karima Talwar Kapoor, Alexi White, Alvin Tejo, Chris Martin, and me, Sam Andre. We are supported by amazing volunteers Aisha Anwar and, and Harman Mundi. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. To become a supporter, you can go to patreon.com slash OntarioLoud or OntarioLoud.ca and click on the Patreon link. Thanks everyone for listening and have a great week.